0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning and I hope to draw our attention to both the historical significance of this event and then also the spiritual and eternal significance and implications that it has for us that believe in this historical event. The resurrection is kind of the turning point in... History for those that were following Jesus in his earthly ministry. It's as though up until the resurrection, Jesus was having informational meetings about following him because you see uh, belief kind of fluctuate with those that are following him. People come for a little while, they hear something they don't like, and then they walk away. Even those that have committed to following him have serious doubts along the way about is he really who he's claiming to be. And so you see different events that lead to increased faith in the lives of the disciples. Things like Jesus calming the storm. And you have disciples discussing who, who, who could do this? Who, who would have the power to be able to do the things that we are seeing? And so you see faith start to increase in some and then others begin to walk away. And it's though he's having informational meetings to gauge the interest in people and following him. But after the resurrection, things get serious. If there's no more informational meetings, it's it's people have signed up for real and they begin to follow Jesus in a way that they weren't following him before the resurrection. Even in the lives of the disciples, you don't see the fluctuating faith and doubt happen in their life after the resurrection. They go from unstable at times before the resurrection to the foundation of the early church after the resurrection, seemingly overnight. Um, It's the appearance of a resurrected Jesus that that firmly entrenches them in everything that they had heard for the one and a half, two, three years that they had been listening to his teaching. Things got serious after the resurrection. The, The truth of what happened radically changed these individuals to where they were never the same again. And we see Christianity explode onto the scene in a way that uh, even in Jesus' ministry wasn't happening. And Jesus proclaimed the fact that once he was gone, the disciples were going to do things uh, to, to a greater degree than what he was even doing at the time. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, the church was going to multiply greatly. And people were going to come to Christ for real. And we're going to stay followers of Christ, persevere until the end. So as we examine some different aspects of the resurrection, I hope to... Uh, solidify your faith in the resurrection, not as though I believe you doubt it, but to solidify it in such a way that you feel like you are working from the advantage point when sharing the resurrection with other people, that it's not a, a fairy tale or a fable that we we hope happened, but that it's a historical reality for us, an event that we can confidently proclaim to others, confidently proclaiming it in a way that it radically changes people forever. A couple of truths to remember as we start off this morning looking at the resurrection. Number one, the resurrection helps define us as believers. The resurrection helps define us as believers, which means it's not something that we should draw attention to simply during the time of spring each year. The resurrection is reality. It's important reality for us every day of our life. It defines us as believers. If you want to jot down some of these passages, we're going to be in different areas today as we look at the resurrection as a whole. But in Romans chapter 4, verse 20, Paul's talking about the faith of Abraham. It says, "...no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised." That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Belief in the resurrection defines us as Christians. In Romans chapter 10, Verses 9 through 12. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Belief in the resurrection is what defines us as believers. It's, it's understanding the fact that not only did Jesus die on the cross, but everything he said before that is validated. It's found to be true based on the reality of the resurrection. If Jesus doesn't come back from the dead, Paul tells us, then our faith is in vain. Everything he said up to that is of, of null and void. And so the belief, belief in the resurrection is so important to our faith, to our Christianity. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 For Paul, it had become his identity. He's listed off everything that was true about him, things that were were of value to someone from an earthly perspective, and he dismisses all those things. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had bought into this belief of the resurrected Jesus and it had radically changed his own personal identity. I mean, these other things that had once been valued, the things that defined him, that he was an Israelite, that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, that he was a Pharisee, that he knew the law, things that that were important to him that defined him are now counted as nothing. The resurrection defines Paul now. His belief in the resurrected Jesus and the hope that it's given him to attain a similar resurrection in the future is now what makes him tick. It's now what makes him go every day to know that power of resurrection. Sam Storm says, I can honestly say that I've staked my life on an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs suspended on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. The decision I made decades ago to put my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is only as good as the tomb is empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. I've invested everything in it. I've staked everything on it. I've entrusted everything to the historical fact of the empty tomb of Jesus. If his body and bones are still buried somewhere in Palestine or have long since disintegrated under the force of time and the law of physics, nothing has meaning for me. Nor do I have meaning for anything or anyone else. A definition that I found for Christian, it's someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and lives in light of the implications of that event. A Christian is someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and lives in light of the implications of that event. Jesus is back from the dead and it ought to radically change the way we live every single day now. It defines who we are as Christians. The second truth to remember is that we trust in the truth of what happened. We trust in the truth of what happened. We've been defining faith now for the last couple of months as trusting truth. When we talk about increasing our faith, it means that we increase our trust by increasing the truth that we know. So as believers, we believe in the resurrection. We trust in the truth of what happened. And our faith increases the more we trust in that truth. The more truth that we have to trust in, the greater our faith can be. So I want to take just a minute, and we've we've looked at this before, but I want to draw your attention back to this. Things that are accepted about what happened 2,000 years ago by the greatest of skeptics. Things that are accepted by the greatest atheists that that our earth knows. These are accepted facts by everybody that has looked at the historical account of the resurrection. These are things that, that if, we were, if the resurrection of Jesus was on trial, these are accepted facts both by the, the defense, those that are, that, are, that are trying to defend the resurrection, and those that are prosecuting against the resurrection, trying to say that, that it didn't happen, that it's not true. All the evidence is on the table by these two, and these are, these are evidences that, that they all agree on. The first is that Jesus died by crucifixion. That's not disputed. Atheists agree and accept, world-renowned atheists, people that are smarter than us as Christians, that have looked at this far longer than we ever have as Christians, have come to the conclusion that, yes, a man from Nazareth named Jesus died on a cross. The second thing that everybody agrees on is that he was buried. That he was definitely buried. The third thing is that his death, Caused the disciples to lose hope. Again, this isn't what the Bible teaches us. This is what history teaches us. This isn't stuff that we have to draw from the Bible. This is what historical accounts tell us that Jesus died on a cross, that he was buried, that his death caused the disciples to lose hope. Number four, that his tomb was discovered to be empty. That his tomb was discovered to be empty. Number five, that the disciples had experiences that made them think Jesus was resurrected. The disciples had experiences that led them to believe Jesus was resurrected. Number six, the disciples were transformed into bold proclaimers of Jesus. The disciples were transformed into bold proclaimers of Jesus. You'll remember before the resurrection, they're scared, they're running, they want nothing to do with Jesus, they don't want to identify with him. Even atheists agree that after the crucifixion, they lost hope, they were in despair, they were cowering in the corner, wondering, what do we do with our life now? They're like Sam Storms, they're thinking, everything that we've invested in for the last three years, it's gone. Like, we've lost everything. We, We were staking our claim on Jesus being the Messiah, and he's clearly not now. What do we do with our life? But then they had experiences that made them think Jesus was raised, and it transformed them into being bold proclaimers of Jesus. The resurrection became the center of preaching in the early church. Number seven. Resurrection was the center of preaching in the early church. We looked at this last year on Easter, how uh, the resurrection became the sermon that was being preached in the early church. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the ability to expound on the letters of Paul. Paul. They didn't have the Gospels to go through and, and look at the, the life of Jesus. They didn't have the New Testament yet, so they were, they were teaching the Old Testament and they were proclaiming the resurrection every single week. Jesus is back from the dead. Number eight, the message was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem. That's important because that's where Jesus died and was buried. Number nine, the message resulted in the church being born and Sunday becoming the day of worship. It's kind of recapping the last five. The disciples had experiences that led them to believe Jesus was resurrected. The disciples were transformed into bold proclaimers of Jesus. The resurrection was the center of preaching in the early church. The message was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem. The message resulted in the church being born, Sunday becoming the primary day of worship. And number 10, skeptics also believe that the greatest skeptics at that time became believers. Skeptics became believers, specifically his brother James. James, who grew up with Jesus, who saw Jesus on a daily basis, who rejected Jesus all through his earthly ministry wanted nothing to do with Jesus and his claims of being the Messiah he becomes a believer after this rumor of resurrection starts to circulate paul a persecutor and killer of christians previously known as saul working to destroy at all cost the story of the resurrection becomes a believer And atheists believe that. Atheists agree that some of the greatest skeptics at that time became believers. And why do I share that with you? Because if you you look at the evidence and you examine the evidence, we're working from the advantage point that all the evidence points to something radically happening 2,000 years ago that if he really did die and he was buried and his tomb was empty and people claimed to see him back from the dead and it radically changed their life, they began to preach this message in Jerusalem where, where anybody could have disproved it if it was possible to disprove it. And yet they couldn't. In fact, the greatest skeptics in Jerusalem became believers of it. The only thing that we're left to conclude is that Jesus really came back from the dead. And I don't say that because I believe that you doubt it. I say it to empower you to share that message with others that we're not working from the disadvantage point. That as we proclaim the gospel, our message has to center on the resurrection and we can feel good about the fact that every piece of evidence out there points to it being reality. When people come to me and say that they're having trouble sharing the gospel with somebody, this person's just not believing. They're not sure that there is a God. They just really doubt that if there is a God, how could God allow this type of thing? What do I do? How do I answer that? I always come back to, you talk about Jesus. You talk about his identity. You talk about his resurrection. And and once we solidify that, everything else just kind of falls into place. If I believe that Jesus claimed things about himself that were true, that he's God, and if I believe he came back from the dead then it validates everything else he says. And any other confusions that I have, I can work through now, believing that he really is who he claimed to be. I don't ever try to share the gospel and try to prove to somebody that God exists. If I'm sharing the gospel, I'm pointing them to a historical Jesus. What do you think happened to that man, Jesus? What happened to his body? Because even the greatest atheist believes that a man named Jesus lived... Even the greatest atheist believes that, that people thought he was resurrected. What do you think happened to him? Because if you believe he came back from the dead, that has big time implications. It validates everything else that he said about himself. People want to argue that, that he didn't really die on the cross. That, that his body was stolen. That his tomb was wrongly identified. That people went to the wrong tomb. And yet none of those theories really match the evidence that we all agree on. The fact is is that he was resurrected. And the greatest evidence for the resurrection, the three greatest evidences for the resurrection is that there's nobody, that over 500 people saw him at one time, and that the lives of the disciples were radically changed. Nobody, 500 witnesses, and the lives of the disciples were radically changed changed we work from the advantage point we trust in truth that that this really is what happened and we can feel good about trusting in this because even the skeptics believe these facts are true and the only the only theory that makes sense is that jesus truly came back from the dead it becomes our message that we preach to others the resurrection it's a story that will never die we're 2,000 years after the fact, and the story of Christ's resurrection continues. Because stories about people coming back from the dead just don't go away. They just don't stop. It radically changed the church. It radically changed the day that was, was viewed as the day of worship for the church. And it continues to radically change people today. The resurrection, it's earthly history It's earthly history, which means, yes, when we read the book of Romans and we read other passages of the New Testament, there's a lot of uh, spiritual implications for the resurrection that because Christ has died, we've been raised to life now spiritually, that we're new creations, that we've been regenerated. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And sometimes it draws us away from, from the attention of the historical reality, that there were real characters that played out in this story. There were real events, there were real emotions and feelings going on that day 2,000 years ago. So we want to take a minute to pause and look at the earthly history of the resurrection. First of all, the Bible begins and ends with death. The Bible begins and ends with death. In Romans 18, our attention is drawn back to the Garden of Eden where death entered into the world. We wait for it with patience. Paul draws our attention back to creation and how creation is longing for the day that it's set free from death. That death entered into this world in in the Garden of Eden. And ever since then, God has been working to fix that problem. Part of his plan all along. But it's been playing out over the course of history. God fixing the problem of death. And Paul draws our attention that as, as much as we wait for it, creation waits for it as well. The day that it's resurrected, The day that it's renewed once again and freed from death. And we see that day approaching in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, John draws our attention to the future when death is completely put to rest. In verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The Bible begins and ends with death. It begins tragically with death entering into this world, and it ends gloriously with death exiting this world forever. And it's initiated with the return of Jesus Christ, the the event that we now long for and hope for as believers. But let's take some time to look at the gospel accounts of what happened that day. I've I've read these, and, and sometimes I hear believers talk about perhaps the most important day. I mean, obviously, all the work of Christ is important, but it all climaxes with the resurrection. And sometimes we talk about an important day, and we have our facts mixed up. Sometimes we we, we share truth about the Bible based on things that we've heard from Sunday school lessons that weren't based on Scripture, that were just based on storytelling, And we don't get our facts straight from the scriptures. If you read the four gospel accounts, it can be very confusing about what actually happened that day. And we're going to read through the four, and then I'm going to try to harmonize as best I can what happened on that day. Because if you just simply read through the four of them, and I did it again this morning, and I was like, man, like you read this, and it sounds like they just flat out contradict each other. What's important to remember is that any time you have four people telling the same story, you are going to have different events and circumstances highlighted by those four individuals. Their personalities are going to come out in that storytelling. What was important to them is going to come out in that storytelling. Things are going to be left out because of their own um, experience with that day. So as we read these four, we should not expect them or... um, It should not be necessary for them to be identical, for them to be true. I think the important thing that they want to communicate in all four accounts is that Jesus was buried. We knew where he was buried. We went there to find him that morning. And what ensued after that was complete confusion. We were running around like crazy people trying to figure out what in the world was going on. And it wasn't until we all came back together, got our stories straight, and a lot of us had seen Jesus that we even began to believe what was happening. That's, that's the gist of what they want to communicate in these four gospel accounts is that we knew where he was, we went there to find him, and it got crazy after that. We were running back and forth trying to figure out what was going on, and we were missing each other in the process. Some of us were seeing Jesus, some of us weren't. Some of us were in despair, some of us were joyful and hopeful because we were picking up on what was happening. So let's look at some of these accounts together so we can see exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. In Matthew chapter 27, we'll start there. Matthew chapter 27 We'll start off by looking at the immediate events leading up to the resurrection, the burial of Jesus. Who buried Jesus? Do we know? Two clear people buried Jesus. Who were they? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. The same Nicodemus who came to Jesus and says, what does it mean to be born again? That's encouraging because we don't really hear from Nicodemus again after that. Like like that that account, Jesus, John three sixteen. I mean, he's sharing the gospel. We don't really pick up on the fact if Nicodemus responds to that gospel. I mean, the story just ends. Then we get Nicodemus again here at the end, and it's the same Nicodemus, and he is right there at Jesus' crucifixion. He's clearly a believer, and he helps put the body of Christ into the tomb. In Matthew 27, verse 57, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Don't miss that. Don't miss those accounts right there. That's important. That's important to your belief about the resurrection is that individuals knew where he was. Because one of the the theories out there that people want to believe is that they all went to the wrong tomb. They all took a wrong turn and ended up at an empty tomb that never had a body in it to begin with. I think Matthew's very intentional to say there were two men. One of them owned the tomb. He clearly knew where the tomb was. The other one went with him, and there were two women who watched it to make sure that they knew where to go when they were going to bring the spices and stuff for his body. Verse 62, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure Until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Don't miss that account because the other popular theory out there is that someone stole the body. What's crazy, and it still boggles my mind, that the Pharisees understood to some degree Jesus' teachings better than the disciples did. The Pharisees said, we know when that man was alive, he talked about coming back from the dead. You don't pick up on the disciples thinking about that, talking about that. There's There's no real anticipation. The disciples aren't sitting around going, all right, I know this is crazy, but you remember he talked about coming back from the dead. And he said it would be three days later. So let's don't despair until three days have passed. You don't get that at all in the gospel accounts. And the ones that are writing about it, don't try to sugarcoat it and make it sound like they were doing that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about the fact we were in despair. We did not believe this story was going to take a turn for the good. The Pharisees were scared because they knew he taught resurrection. Now, we don't get even the slightest hint they believed it was possible. They're not saying, we got to keep Jesus in the tomb because he's going to try to get out. It's, we got to try to keep people from getting into the tomb, stealing him, and trying to uh, spread this rumor that he's back from the dead. They weren't scared of Jesus coming back from the dead. They were scared of people faking it. And they said, if that happens, everything that he's taught will be, will be uh, increased. What, what we thought was bad will be even worse. If you go back and read the account of Lazarus, when Lazarus was resurrected, they wanted to kill Lazarus because they knew resurrection makes people believe. The Lazarus account after that, it says that people started believing like crazy in Jesus because they saw Lazarus back from the dead. And it said that from that day on, they sought to kill Jesus and to kill Lazarus. Resurrected people make people believe in Jesus. They said, we've got to make sure that that doesn't happen. Pilate says, do whatever you want to. Do whatever necessary to keep people out of that tomb. You can bank on the fact the Pharisees did that. They went to great lengths to make sure that he stayed in the tomb. Let's look at the next account of the burial, Mark chapter 15. Again, we're highlighting stories that we know because I want to emphasize details that sometimes we just blow right over. This is important because a lot of us have kids. And I want to make sure that we pass on the truth of stories from the Bible accurately. Sometimes we, 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 we fought this we, to our own fault, we, we mess the story up by trying to summarize it. Uh, let me just tell you what the Bible has to say. And we start making up stories and, and adding details or leaving out details that are crucial to the Word of God. Mark chapter 15, verse 42. When the evening had come since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath... Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Jesus. Do not miss that part. Because the other major theory is that Jesus did not die on the cross, that he fainted, he passed out, and that when he was put into the coolness of the tomb, after three days he got up and he walked out of the tomb. Not resurrected, just resuscitated. That he didn't really die. It says Pilate was a little shocked. Whoa, he's already dead? I'm going to need some validation there. Let me go get the, the, the one who was there who made sure that he was dead. The centurion comes and says, Absolutely, the man is dead. There's no question. And it's only after Pilate is assured of the fact that he's dead that he passes off the corpse to Joseph. Verse forty six. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. Luke 23, now. Again, this is important. You should feel empowered to talk about the resurrection with people. It's the only thing that makes sense. Luke 23, verse 50. Luke 23, verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb and cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, saw the tomb and how his body was laid, Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Then we look in John John chapter 19, verse 38. This is where we learn again of Nicodemus. This is because Nicodemus was mentioned in John chapter 3. John sees fit to mention him again here at the end of Christ's life. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about uh, 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The accounts are a little bit different. Some have details included that the other one doesn't include. The important thing is, is that they got the body, they knew it was dead, and they knew where they put it. That's what we take away from those four accounts. That they got the body, it didn't end up in Roman hands. It ended up in the hands of Jesus' friends. It was dead, the Roman officials would not have handed it over unless Jesus was officially dead, and they knew exactly where they put it. At least four individuals knew the exact spot. One of them owned the spot. It's important, not just for you to believe it, but for you to feel empowered to share this story with others, that it happened. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. It's historic reality. Now we look at the resurrection accounts back again in Matthew chapter 28. This is where I mean those were pretty consistent. But now you start getting just a uh all kinds of varying details about what happened on this special morning. Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week Mary Magdalene, the other Mary went to see the tomb and behold there was a great earthquake. For an angel the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, "'Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead.' And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, where you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met him and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, "Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I mean, Matthew really speeds up this whole story here. I mean, because right after this, boom! It's it's great commission, and he's done writing. So we get a lot of events that happened in a spread out amount of time, all lumped together like it was just boom, 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 boom. The important thing is is that the women showed up. They knew where to go. Jesus wasn't there. The angel greeted them. They saw an empty tomb. They met Jesus on their way back. The guards went and turned themselves in, basically. We blew it. But nobody stole his body. Jesus resurrected. Pharisees say, don't you dare tell people that. See, we look at the, the accepted accounts and you're like, well, why would a skeptic not believe? Why would somebody continue to reject the resurrection? Because to believe the resurrection means everything else that he said is true. The Pharisees continue to ignore evidence after evidence after evidence. They say, no, no, no. They even have Roman guards. These aren't disciples. These are Roman soldiers who have no reason to believe in a resurrected Jesus. Maybe have never even heard the man's teaching. They come back and they say, you're not going to believe this. Pharisees say, we don't believe that. In fact, you tell this story because you're not going to tell that story. And they continue to resist the truth of the resurrection. That's Matthew's account. Matthew includes two women here. But we find out that there was more women involved in this. If we turn over to Mark chapter 16... He said to them, Do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Then in verse 9, Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. From whom he had cast out seven demons, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. So now we get the indication that Jesus first appears to Mary Magdalene. Even though in Matthew's account, it seems like he appears to all the women. And that's the first account that we have of Jesus appearing to anybody. If we go to Luke now. Luke 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them. Now it's two men, two angels, not just one, in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they had told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. We're getting more details, more individuals that are involved in this. And then the last account in John, in John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, this is the first time that we're finding out that Mary Magdalene seems to have left the other group there, and she bolted immediately and went back and said that his body's gone, and I don't have an explanation for it. Now, we know from the other accounts that the angels tell him what's going on, right? I mean, the angels say, hey, he's not here, he's risen, go tell the disciples. This is the first time that we have indication that Mary Magdalene left before that conversation happened. Mary Magdalene goes back and tells Peter and John his body is gone, they've taken it, and we don't know what they've done with it. She doesn't bring good news and hope of resurrection. She comes back basically saying his body might have been stolen. That that sends Peter and John into a bit of a frenzy. Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary, talking about Mary Magdalene, Stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, This account is crazy as far as, like, there is so much commotion going on. So many different people going back and forth trying to figure out what's going on. Some of them are starting to pick up on the fact. Some of them are continuing to doubt. The important thing from all these accounts, and and hopefully at the end here I'm going to read kind of a, a harmonization of all these events together. The important thing to realize is they knew where to go. They knew that they saw him buried there, so they knew exactly where to go that morning. They got there, and the tomb was empty, and fear and doubt and questioning and maybe possibly hope began to set in. There was mass confusion between the disciples of Jesus and the women going back and forth trying to figure out what was going on. Jesus starts appearing to them at individual accounts. And as they begin to see the resurrected Jesus, belief really sets in, that he's not been stolen, that they're not at the wrong tomb, that he truly is back from the dead. And it's once they all are able to get back together in one location, discuss what they've seen, discuss what they heard, that reality really begins to set in. The earthly history of the resurrection its an account that truly happened. The tomb was definitely empty we talked about the the accepted account that the resurrection was proclaimed early on in Jerusalem without an empty tomb The message would have never been preached and the message would have never been believed That's historical fact the empty tomb All the pharisees would have had to have done was drag the body out and said here. It is stop your preaching. They couldn't They couldn't the guards came to them. They went to see what the guards had said. They saw the empty clothes. I'm sure as well They didn't see the angels they saw the empty clothes, they saw the empty tomb, and they walked away and said, we don't believe. We don't believe. We also know that people were never the same again. It's after the resurrection that all of Jesus' teachings really begin to, to make sense to them. In John 2.22, Jesus is talking about telling the, the Pharisees, you can destroy me, and in three days I'll raise from the dead. I'll bring myself back to life. He uses the illustration of destroying the temple of God. Verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's after the fact that everything really begins to make sense, and that's why they're radically changed after the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was also very unique. First Corinthians 15 There was something different about this this resurrection that they were witnessing. Again, we're talking history here. We're talking what happened in these weeks and months leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and then what happened after. They saw resurrection happen with Lazarus. I mean, they saw Lazarus come back from the dead. And while people began to believe in Jesus, it doesn't change the disciples, really. Like They believe in Jesus, but they're still scared of death. Even seeing a man raised from the dead doesn't change them. It doesn't defeat their fear of death like the resurrection of Jesus does because Jesus' resurrection is different. Jesus' resurrection is different. We talked about this last year, all the different resurrections accounts in in the Scriptures. People in the Old Testament raised to life. People in the New Testament raised to life. Jesus' resurrection is the unique resurrection. It's the first fruits of the resurrection that we hope in. See, Jesus comes back with a glorified body. Lazarus comes back with the same old body. Lazarus would have died again. We know it's different because when Lazarus comes out, what is he wearing? He's wearing all the wrappings, right? He looks like a mummy. He comes out and Jesus says, Take those silly things off of him. He doesn't need those anymore. He's not dead anymore. Jesus comes out and he leaves them behind. He doesn't walk out of the tomb with his burial clothes on. It's a different type of resurrection it's a glorified body resurrection 1st corinthians 15 verse 20 but in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep he's the first person resurrected with a glorified body verse 23 but each in his own order christ the first fruits then at his coming those who belong to christ then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of god to the father after destroying every rule and every authority and power We get this same type of resurrection when Jesus comes back. We talked about it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5. We've been hitting on it for months now. When Jesus comes back, we get this type of resurrection. It's the hope of this type of resurrection that changes the disciples from being scared to die for Jesus to saying, kill us if you need to, but we're not going to stop telling you about resurrection. It's seeing this type of resurrection that changes their perspective about death. Yeah, it was great that Lazarus came back from the dead, but that guy still looks the same. He still gets sick. He still experiences pain. He's still going to die. It's seeing a resurrected Jesus in a real body, and Jesus was very intentional to show this is real. He shows up to the disciples, and they're like... Ah, we think you might be a ghost. He's like, nah, give me a piece of fish. Like, ghosts don't eat fish. Let me show you. Let me eat something. You're not going to see it, like, passing through me in a weird way. Like, it's going to go right into my stomach, a real stomach, a real physical body. It's just glorified now. I'm not tempted to sin anymore. You can't kill me if you wanted to right now. It's It's a different thing. It's a different type of resurrection. It radically changes the disciples seeing it. It's a prequel to what's coming in the future for everyone. Daniel chapter 12. The Bible tells us that there's coming a day when everyone will be resurrected. Verse 2 of Daniel 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. We talked about this earlier today. Many will be resurrected to experience the cup of God's wrath for eternity. Number two, it's a spiritual reality. Number three, it's an eternal necessity a spiritual reality, and an eternal necessity. It's a a historical event. Yes, it's earthly history. Jesus came back from the dead. Real people experienced it. Real people were there that Sunday morning. Real people understood after the fact what had happened. It was a real historical event, not some type of spiritual thing that we've made up. But it does have spiritual implications for us. It is a spiritual reality for us. First of all, resurrection is available to us now, even though we have to wait for our glorified bodies. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will be shown him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's talking from a spiritual standpoint. Those of us that are dead in our sin will hear the good news of Jesus, respond to it, and come alive spiritually spiritually. Regeneration. Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. Jesus says, That time is here now, where you hear my voice, you're dead, you come alive. Ephesians 2 talks about us being dead in our sin and now alive to Christ. Verse 26 For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice. Now he's talking about physical resurrection. At first he describes spiritual resurrection where only some hear his voice. Some respond to it. Some are brought from death to life. But then there's coming a day when everyone who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We need to be a part of this first resurrection where we come to understand who Christ is so that when that day comes, when everyone is resurrected, we're on the right end of things. We're resurrected to life and not to the second death. Resurrection is available to us now if we will yield to the truth of the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 Jesus raises us to life spiritually right now through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're raised to walk in newness of life. It's the picture of baptism, that we've been, uh, we've been killed in Christ. Our sin has been killed. We've died to it, and we're now alive to walk in righteousness with the hope of one day being raised to physical life where we will never die again. Resurrection, talking about a spiritual reality still, resurrection sets us free. It sets us free from judgment. It sets us free from sin. It it sets us free from death. Seeing the resurrected Jesus sets us free from these things that were previously a burden to us. In Revelation chapter 1, resurrected Jesus talking or he's being talked about, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades right there for the things that you have seen, those that are, that are and those that are to take place after this. Jesus comforts John and he says, I died but I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to death. I hold the keys to judgment. You don't have anything to fear. You serve the one who is in control of all of that. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, Hebrews two fourteen through fifteen Jesus sets us free from the fear of death. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. First Peter chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Resurrection sets us free from a fear of death. We now have a hope of resurrection. Which, which should radically change the way we live. It radically changed the way the disciples lived. They no longer feared death. When people threatened to kill them, when people threatened to kill them, they didn't fight back. They didn't try to avoid it. They didn't try to escape from it. They willingly were able to lay down their life because they no longer feared death. Peter and other disciples who fled Jesus willingly submit themselves to, to die for Jesus because they believe in life after death now. They believe in eternal life. They believe in physical resurrection that's to come one day. It's an eternal necessity. The resurrection must be the climax of our message. If we're sharing the gospel and we're not including the resurrection, then we're not sharing the right gospel. If we're sharing the gospel and we're never getting around to the resurrection, We're not sharing the full gospel. John chapter 11. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Jesus calls himself the resurrection. Acts 4, 1 through 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five I don't think 5,000 people believe that day if the resurrection is not included in the message. The resurrection is what gets these people excited about Christ, makes them willing to submit their lives to Him. Verse 32 in the same chapter. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony. To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It was their message, it's what they were proclaiming to others. 1 Corinthians fifteen. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It has to be the message that we pass on to others. It validates our message. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19. It makes our message real. Paul says if we don't have the resurrection, we don't have anything. Nothing that we say is of any, of any importance if we don't have the resurrection. It gives us a proper hope for the future. A, future, a, a hope of the future that we can pass on to others in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? One day we'll be equipped with bodies that are ready for a resurrected earth. It gives us motivation to press on right now. It gives us the motivation that we need to press on in our life right now. In verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 58, "Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain." What an encouraging word to Christians that get tired sometimes and and worn out of following Jesus that the pressures of this life, the the pressures of ministry, the pressures of serving other people begins to to weigh heavy on us. Paul says, don't be discouraged. Know that your labor is not in vain. Christ is resurrected. One day you're going to be resurrected. It pushes us on daily in our pursuit of Christ. It's our motivation for the here and now. It's also the proper ending to this story that God is telling Resurrection is the proper ending to this whole story. In Hebrews 11, we find out that people in the Old Testament are waiting for their bodies. I was reading on Facebook yesterday, and I mean, obviously, it wasn't the, the appropriate time to bring it up, but somebody mentioned uh, a death of a relative yesterday, and, and they said, I'm, I'm rejoicing over the fact that my sister is in heaven with her new body, and she's no longer in pain. And That's not true. Her sister's not in heaven right now with a new body. Her sister's in heaven with the Old Testament saints saying, when will Jesus come back so that this story can be put to an end and we can start a new story of eternity? Nobody's in heaven with a new body. Nobody's in heaven saying, man, we made it to the end. No, they're in heaven waiting. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, must we endure? How long do we have to stay in this condition until Christ comes and puts an end to everything? They're not rejoicing over the end of death in heaven right now. They're waiting just like we are, Hebrews 11 tells us. They're waiting for that day when their souls get reunited with their bodies. That girl's body is still here. It'll be buried over the next couple of days, and it will await resurrection. That's our final hope. It's the ending to this story that we find out in 1 Thessalonians 4. When Jesus comes back with the saints, their bodies are raised, and we meet them in the air Paul says, and we will always be with the Lord. Doesn't give us the details of what happens, just says all you need to know is we will be with the Lord forever. It's the ending to this story so that we start a new story of eternity. Application. What does the resurrection, a historical event, mean for us today? First of all, we lose our life to gain eternal life. The resurrection has implications for us because what it calls us to is to lose our life now, to gain eternal life. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus encourages his disciples. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I found it really interesting at our secret church event when David Platt highlighted this passage and said that the word for witness here is actually martyr because it says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now we know what the word martyr means. Martyr means someone who dies for their faith. Who gives up their life for what they believe in. And Jesus is essentially saying, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you become my martyrs. You die to your life. You die to your dreams, your aspirations, living life the way that you want to. And you surrender your life to me as your Lord and you receive the commands from your official officer that we've been talking about in, in 2 Thessalonians. You yield to those commands and you command others. You command others. You lose your life for me. Second application, we gain life by believing in the one who can give life. Jesus told Martha that he was the resurrection and the life. John chapter 20 Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have never seen and yet have believed. Talking about us. We've not seen the resurrected Jesus, but we can come to him believing in him, believing that he can give us life. And then, lastly, and I think it's important that we don't miss this, I told you that resurrection is available for us now. We can be raised to new life now, spiritually. And anytime life is given in Scripture, it's always commanded that life procreate. We procreate our new life by making disciples. God creates Adam and Eve and says, here's new life. You guys be faithful to multiply. Multiply on this earth. He says, go be together, go figure out what that's like, and then you guys have babies. And fill this earth up, procreate. The command to procreate is different now for Jesus' disciples. Matthew 28, it's you go and make disciples of all nations. You procreate this life that's been given to you. You've seen me, Jesus says. You've seen the resurrected me. You have new life in me now and the hope of eternal life with me one day. Go procreate the belief of that life in others. Go teach it to others. Go share it with others. Make the resurrection your message of hope to others. Take the historical event, take all the facts that everybody knows happens, and point people to the only theory that makes sense a theory that is no longer a theory but reality we'll close by reading through the the harmonized account of what happened that morning bringing all the gospel accounts together it says this is put together by um, some different pastors it says early sunday morning while it was still dark mary magdalene mary the mother of james joanna and salome began their journey to the tomb of joseph of arimathea where jesus had been buried they began their journey to see the tomb from the house in Jerusalem and also planned on rewrapping Jesus' body with additional spices beyond those which Nicodemus and Joseph had already used on Friday. This was necessary to adequately complete the burial rites which had been hurried up on Friday because of the short time before the Sabbath. And they had brought the additional spices with their own money. As the women were traveling before they arrived at the tomb, there was an earthquake during which an angel descended from heaven. And removed the stone which was in front of Jesus' tomb. He then sat on the stone in his majestic splendor, frightening the guard and making it clear that no one could replace the stone. After recovering from the shock, the guards fled in fear. The angel then became invisible so as not to frighten the women unnecessarily when they first arrived. By the time the women reached the tomb, the sun had risen and it was light. They had been wondering as they were traveling who would roll away the large stone for them, "'only to look up and see that the stone "'had already been rolled away. "'Mary Magdalene jumped to the conclusion "'that the body had been stolen "'and therefore immediately ran back to tell Peter and John "'while the other women remained to investigate. "'After a few moments of bewilderment, Salome led Mary, the mother of James, and Joanna "'into the tomb. "'Not finding the body, the women were very perplexed. "'At this point, as the women stood bewildered in the tomb, "'the angel who had rolled away the stone "'again made himself visible along with a companion.' They appeared in a sitting position, one at the head and one of the feet of where the body should have been laying. The angel at this point delivered their message to the terrified women who were bowing their faces into the ground. Do not be afraid, for I know you were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Here is the place he was lying. Remember how he spoke to you while in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. The women remembered Jesus' words and were gripped with astonishment, trembling, and joy. Led by Joanna, they all rushed back into the city to tell the disciples. On their way back, because of their fear, they did not speak to anyone about the events, as Mark 16:8 says. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So we've got the women that came to see Jesus that morning. Mary Magdalene sees a stone moved. She freaks out and runs back immediately, leaving the women behind and goes and tells the disciples that his body is gone. Not that it's been resurrected, that it's been moved. The other women stay, get instructions from the angels, and begin to believe that Jesus truly is back from the dead. But Mary Magdalene's not been brought in on this yet. Unfortunately, she gets back to the disciples before the other women do. By this time, Peter and John were well on their way to the tomb, having been informed by Mary Magdalene that the body was gone. So they're going to cross paths, but they're going different routes, so they don't see each other. So Peter and John are going because Mary Magdalene has said the body has been taken. They had set off on their most direct course through the Ginneth Gate and were running, whereas the other women were returning to the house via a longer path. Mary Magdalene followed Peter, followed behind Peter and John at a slower pace this being her second trip to the tomb. During their run for the tomb, John passed Peter and arrived first, but he did not immediately enter. Instead, he stooped and looked into the tomb, seeing the linen wrappings lying there. The ambitious Peter, when he arrived, entered ahead of John and saw the linen wrappings and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, rolled up by itself apart from the wrappings. John then entered and he saw and believed. But they did not yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise again. As they returned home, marveling at what had happened, Mary Magdalene lingered behind, weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she looked into the tomb and saw two angels sitting in white, one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus had been lying. So Peter and John don't stick around long enough to get the message from the angel. The angels asked Mary why she was crying, and she responded that it was because someone had taken away Jesus' body, and she did not know where they had put him. The angels did not need to respond to this, for they could see Jesus standing behind her. When Mary turned around, she at first mistook Jesus for the gardener, but recognized him when he addressed her by name. Jesus told her to stop clinging to me. The Greek indicates the discontinuity of an action already begun. Jesus was not saying that he would, he should not ever be touched, but among other things, perhaps giving her assurance that she need not fear to leave him because he is not going to immediately leave again. His ascension to the father is not yet. So she was free to go and tell the news to the others and proceeded to John's house. Also, Jesus' statement, go tell my brethren I ascend to my father and your father, called attention back to the promise he made before the crucifixion that the disciples would have peace and rejoice after the resurrection so that when it comes to pass, they may believe. In the meantime, immediately after Mary had departed from her encounter with Jesus, Jesus appeared to the other women, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, as they were returning to tell the disciples. They took hold of his feet and worshiped him and he greeted them and told them not to fear, but to take word to the disciples that they are to go to Galilee. This did not imply that the disciples were to leave immediately for Galilee. This would have been quite contrary to what was expected of a devout Jew who would have stayed in Jerusalem to observe the several days remaining in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. This was more the announcement of a thrilling promise than the issuing of a precise command. It implied that the divine triumph had begun and that Galilee was to be the place where they would reform their ranks, as we will see later. Calling attention back to Jesus' prediction of his resurrection and a promise of victory in Matthew 26. Matthew 26. As the women continued on their way back, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest what had happened. After the chief priest and the elders had counseled together, they gave the soldiers a bribe, telling them to say that Jesus' disciples stole his body at night while they slept. When Mary returned to John's house, she announced to the disciples there, who were mourning and weeping, that she had seen Jesus and told them what he had said. The other women had returned before Mary and were also there telling these things to the apostles. The women's words seemed like nonsense to the apostles, and they refused to believe. But Peter arose again, returned to the tomb to investigate once more where he would encounter Jesus as well. So it was pandemonium at that time, running back and forth from the tomb. So we have different accounts in the Gospels because there was such confusion. People coming to the tomb, people leaving, leaving some behind at the tomb. Jesus begins to appear to these different individuals. They come back together, get their stories straight. They meet up with Jesus. They get their final orders from Jesus. And the church begins to explode on the scene as they preach the message of the resurrection. As we close this morning, I want to draw your attention back to those individuals that we are supposed to be and hopefully are currently praying for in our own life, seeking to be intentional about in our own life, sharing the gospel with. We've started a list on the city, people that we want to be faithful to pray for people that we want to be faithful to pray for in the lives of other people as well. It would be wrong for us to just enjoy the celebration of Easter and what it means for us ourselves that yes, we have the hope of resurrection, that we've been freed and set free from our sin. But it's also important to realize that this resurrection account, this resurrection story was consistently passed on to others. It was shared with others. They believed it and then they told others. And we can share it confidently because all the facts point to it happening. All the facts say that it's the only thing that makes sense. The Gospels, the details they do give us clearly show us that it was not the wrong tomb, that Jesus definitely died. All the evidence points to a true resurrection. And we can share the truth of that resurrection with others. That command to procreate, to make disciples. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. I encourage you to pray as well for the individuals that God has placed on your heart that you know do not believe in the resurrection right now. Let's allow Easter Sunday this year to be a time where we're pointed back to that message of the resurrection. And let's let it allow, it, let it allow us to be inspired over the coming weeks and months to be intentional about passing on that story Sharing it with those in our life that we know do not believe. Because they will be resurrected one day. And if they've not believed in the resurrection of Christ. That cup of wrath that we talked about earlier today. Is what awaits them in their resurrection. To be drunk in full strength. Let's pray that that cup passes from them. Passes to Christ who did not pass the cup along but instead drank God's wrath for us so that we could be resurrected to new life.